Church, we're in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, there are thousands of people tripping over themselves, trying to get into the presence of Christ. And, and the Lord pulls his disciples aside and, and he says, be very careful to be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Pharisees were the purity party. They were very popular in Judaism. They took the law of Moses and made man-made rules around it. But Jesus says their problem is that they're hypocrites. He says, in one place, he says, they clean the outside of the cup, but inside, they're not clean. They, they paint the outside of the tomb or the sepulcher, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. So, so Christ says that their problem is hypocrisy. And then he goes on, he says in this text, he says, nothing that you whisper will not be revealed and nothing that you say in secret will not be revealed openly. So, so really the problem with the Pharisees is they, they worshiped to an audience of many people to gain their approval. They did what they did. Many of them exercised their righteousness just to be seen by men. And Christ says in essence, but we worship to an audience of one. We worship before the audience of the living God who is gloriously good and he's our father. And so I said last week, that how do you guard against hypocrisy? And I said that the overview of Luke 12 would say, well, you, you reverence and you fear and you run to the embrace of Abba Father. Jesus says that you can buy five sparrows for two pennies. And he says, you're much more valuable than a whole boatload of sparrows. That your heavenly father has even numbered the hair upon your head. So you reverence him, you, you fear him, and you run to his embrace. And then secondly, we should acknowledge the son of God in word and profession and deed. Christ says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge them before the angels of my father in heaven. And then thirdly, we should welcome the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, exalts the name of Jesus, and opens the Word of God for our understanding. So, so that's how we deal with this issue of hypocrisy. And so in, in the midst of this teaching, somebody hollers out from the crowd a question of Jesus, and we have this teaching, a very well-known passage, the parable of the rich fool. Hear the scripture, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable. He said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, so look at this text. I'm just going to give you four steps to unwise living. Christ calls this man a fool or a dimwit, an unwise person. 
Four steps to being a man who lives as an absurd, unwise, silly, lamentable person. Four quick steps. Number one, the the first step to foolish living is you do not ever acknowledge or you're not cognizant of the blessings and the provision that daily flows into your life from a merciful and glorious creator. Uh, this, This foolish man had no concept of a glorious God who gives him gifts of a glorious God who gives him his daily food, of a glorious God who gives him his ability to breathe and live and exist. And so he lived with a total godless consciousness. Conversely, there's a man in the Bible named David, the king of Israel. And in 1 Chronicles 29, he's gathered materials so that his son Solomon can build the temple for the Lord. He says in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 9, he says, Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for With a whole heart they had offered freely to Jehovah, and David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said this, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all, and in your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. That's a different kind of guy. Everything I have comes from you, Lord, David says. It is in your hand to give riches and might and victory and majesty and glory. Everything comes from you. In the book of James, in the New Testament, James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. That's the wise man speaking. Wise man understands that everything is a gift from the Lord. His bountiful hand. I asked this story the other day to a group of people. I said, if you could be in a TV family, who would you choose? TV or movie family? Somebody in the group said the Adams family, which really bothered me. (laughs) I thought, whoa. Don't know if I want to get to know you guys very much better. The Adams family. If I was going to be part of a TV family, it would be the family of the police commissioner of New York. Blue Bloods. Frank Reagan. His daughter is the assistant DA. His dad's living with him. His wife has passed on. His two boys are both New York policemen. One son has been killed in the line of duty. They're a fine family. They believe in truth, justice, and the American way. (laughs) What's interesting about this show is that every show, or almost every show, closes with them praying as they get together and eat on Sunday. They go to Mass or Catholic, they come home, and he says, who's going to pray today? And they pray a prayer that goes like this many times. Uh, Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we have received from thy bounty through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And you you think about that. Let me show you this verse. Paul says to Timothy, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And you say, what does that, what does that mean? I'm not, I'm not sure in some ways. 
But, but I think what Paul is saying is that, is that when you receive a gift, whether it's your food or, or whether it's whatever, that if you, you bring a consciousness to your mind and to your experience that this is from God, and as you remember that this is from God, then it is made holy or it is made given unto the Word by the Word of God and by prayer. And so when you pray for your food, it's not an empty tradition. What you're doing is you're saying, in essence, Lord, we believe that this gift is from you and we receive it as such. O oh, Father, the giver of all good gifts, by virtue of the reality of Christ, amen. It, it is a, a God consciousness. This man was a fool because, step number one, he didn't acknowledge that the blessings and the provision came from the hand of a merciful creator. The second step in being a, a, a half-wit, a, a fool, is to have only one counselor, one ultimate counselor, and that is you. You call the shots. It's interesting that six times he says, I, in this little parable, and four times he says, my. Listen once again. He has a plenteous crop, and he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul. Six times he says, I, four times my. No, it's, it's, it's really all about me. He did not walk with the understanding of what the proverb says in Proverbs 11 and verse 14, where he says this, where there is no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Abundance of counselors. Or Proverbs 13, he who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will be destroyed, verse 20. There's a book entitled Life in the Middle, about midlife crisis. Midlife crisis can happen anytime you're 25 to 95. It's when you realize that you have limited resources and you're not omnicompetent or all-knowing or you won't, you're just not going to be at the Fortune 500 level. CEO level or this level or that level, and you don't get that residency, you get the, I mean, it's, 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 you hit limits. It's called a crisis. And this book by Paul David Tripp about the midlife crisis says this, how do you avoid it? He says, so, so we need constantly to carry two commitments with us wherever we go. First, we need to commit to be persistent and teachable students of God's word. This sentence is golden. We were never designed to figure out life on our own. I'll read it again. We were never designed to figure out life on our own. Only as we submit to the wisdom of the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, will we escape the hold of our own foolishness. Second, we, we need to be committed to the habit of ongoing self-examination. You and I need to get used to standing before the mirror of the Word of God so that we can see ourselves as we really are. Healthy Christianity is found at the intersection of accurate self-knowledge and the true knowledge of God. I think he's right. I must be a person who has counselors in the body of Christ. I've got to realize that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And when I glorify God, I get the blessing. When I glorify God, I get the peace. When I glorify God, I get the purpose in life. It's not about me, 
It is about him. There is something called the narcissistic personality disorder. It is named after someone in Greek mythology named Narcissus, who as a young man was beautiful and his adversary, Nemesis, wanted to entrap him. And so he led him to a pool of water where Narcissus saw his reflection. And he was so, so taken by how beautiful he was, he couldn't leave the pool of water to eat or sleep. And so he starved to death and died as he was entranced by his own beauty. And so we get the term narcissistic personality from that story. And a couple of years ago, the, uh, the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders was released. And after 19 years, they still had the same attributes that define the narcissistic personality disorder person. It says this, and just read a few of them, that, that this person has a grandiose sense of self-importance. It's all about me. Number two, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by other special and unique people. Requires excessive admiration. Always fishing for compliments and is highly susceptible to flattery. Has a sense of personal entitlement, is interpersonally exploitative, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the needs and feelings of others, is arrogant and haughty, on and on and on. And, and see, here, here's my concern. When you live like this man who had no God consciousness and it was all about him, how do you avoid not becoming somewhat incredibly narcissistic and hard to live with? I don't know. So, this guy. This guy's name is, is Kim Jong-un. He's the leader of North Korea. And Kim is, his grandfather and his father were the dictators in North Korea. The country's basically starving to death. There are millions in slave labor camps. And we believe he now has the ability to have nuclear weapons, which is incredibly scary. He's a megalomaniac. He's a bad dude. Uh, he was told as a young man that his father and his grandfather were both born supernaturally on top of a mountain among a, a stars, shooting stars and a full moon, and that they are divine. And he was sent to Switzerland to school where he was a very average student. Uh, but, but the official press release says he has an advanced degree in physics and he's brilliant. He, he's referred to, if you, if you ever see a picture of him, he's always surrounded by adoring masses who are clapping and looking at him with great, great love and esteem because if you don't, he shoots you. He just shoots you. He executed somebody recently with, a, with, with, with a, a rocket launcher from an airplane. Just blew him up. Uh, He's referred to as our brilliant comrade, as a great person born of heaven, as the shining sun of our firmament. Time Magazine recently had a short article on him that said this. He says, Kim is young, 32 to 34, morbidly obese. He's 5'7", weighs 290, we think. Possibly addicted to opioids and possessed of a really bad haircut. <laughs> uh, but, and thinking about his life, I thought, you know, if, if I were told that I was born supernatural on top of a mountain amid a shower of stars and that I was the gift to my country and that I came from a family who's the gift of, of whatever to your country, uh, it'd be hard not to have um, 
narcissistic personality disorder. And that's why I think we have to really fight against it. Because we live in a culture that says your worth is based upon your looks or your achievements or your residency program or where you practice this or where you do this or where you live. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And, and we can easily, in this environment, raise little dictators. Let me show you something. This is really cute. Really cute. This is really not. See? Cute. Real cute. Not. You know, you know some of these people, some of these people who, who, do, who do this stuff, like that woman, you go, they haven't had a serious thought in two decades. If you're trapped on an elevator with them for 30 minutes, I'd rethink jumping off of a building. You know, good grief. But if it's all about me, if it's all about what I want to do, and it's not about something bigger and more grand than me and my little experience, it, it just, it's just difficult. Um, so I was reading a book recently, and the guy said that he, had, he was spending time with someone who's from a very poor country. Let me just read what he says. I was visited by a friend from a very poor country and asked him to give his impression of Americans. He hesitated, and so I assured him that it was okay to speak honestly. What he said next, I will never forget. He says, because you have so much, you complain so much. I was taken aback by the power of his analysis. It seems like it would be the other way around, but it is not. Sinners not only struggle with want, they have a terrible time handling blessing. Sin makes, us, makes all of us scarily self-absorbed and endlessly ravenous. When we have everything we need and we, we complain that we do not have more of everything, that others have a better everything than we do, or that we manufacture new things to crave, we worry more and more and are depressed more easily. We have the time and the money to pay attention to things that were once too busy to even be noticed. And I, I, I was writing this week, and I thought, you know, when we have leisure and affluence and technology and instant gratification, it's difficult. And then we live in this, sub, this culture that says, you are the way you look. Your worth is how you look, how you keep your age, how, how you, your children are raised, where you live and what you do, and, and it is it's just beat into our brain day after day. And the bigger bar mentality is applauded and embraced and given thumbs up. And I remember talking to a woman, a very dear woman years ago, a very dear woman. She had four children. One of the four was not doing well, and, and she was grieving over, and we prayed together, and I said, you know, this is in the Lord's hands. She says, I know it is. She says, but... I believe that my children are my final report card before God. And I thought, I could never live with that burden. I love my children. In fact, I wish I could have more. I don't think I'm going to, but I, you know, I wish I could have more. I love my children. They're, they're dear to me. They're, they're more dear to me than words can express. But, you know, my final report card is the righteousness of Jesus that flows from the cross into my life. That's who I am before God. It's not being a dad or a parent or a pastor or a husband. It is not being X, Y, Z. It is all about the reality of Christ. But that's not what we're taught. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we have to kick against this. So conversely, a wise man walks in the counsel of the Word of God in the assembly of many people, and he listens and he looks at himself in light of who the Lord is. Thirdly, if you're going to be a if you're going to be uh, an unwise person, uh, a dim-witted, vacuous person, you must be presumptuous. You must do what this man says when he's blessed of God. You must be presumptuous. You must say, the scripture says, so he said, I said to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Just be presumptuous. There's nothing wrong with a stock portfolio or a savings program. But if you line your life out for 15 or 20 or 30 or 35 years and you checked all the boxes and you don't consider the greatness and the majesty and the sovereignty and the lordship of Christ in your life, you are a practical fool. No concept of God and his leadership. No concept of God and what he wants you to do. No concept of his high calling of your life. No concept that he set you apart to be a person who glorifies his name. You're living as a pragmatic fool. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. But it always is under the rubric of the things of God. Do not grow presumptuous. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He says in this very passage, he says, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about the things that the non-believers worry about. You have Abba Father. That's tough. So in 2003, if you had asked a group of sports enthusiasts, who is the greatest athlete in America today? Some would say Michael Jordan. Some would have said Roger Federer is really, man, he's, he's an incredible tennis. So, some people would have said Kobe Bryant at that time. And this young guy coming on the scene named LeBron James looked pretty good. But almost anybody that had ever watched sports in the last few years would have said this name at the top or near the top of their list. The guy's name, Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, in, as a 25-year-old in 1996, wasn't feeling well, went to the doctor, the doctor did some research, sent him to a urologist. He had, he had stage three testicular cancer, stage three. And I talked to a man who had been involved in some of the research that helped him out, and he told me there was cancer all over his body. The urologist looked at him and said, you know, if you do this therapy and do this medical work and do this and do that, you have a 20% chance of Success. And really, he said later, I thought it was zero. I said 20% just to encourage him to do something. But he went to this uh, treatment and miraculously, he kicked cancer. He beat cancer. So starting in the year 2000, it was 1999, he won seven straight Tour de France's. The Tour de France is a bicycle race in Europe uh, every summer. It's 21 days and 2,000. 200 miles up and down mountains. It's not on the beach. It is horrible. It is an incredible race of endurance. And he won it seven years in a row. And as the third and fourth year kicked in, he started breaking record after record after record. I mean, not breaking, just blowing them out of the water. The whispering started. They said stuff like performance enhancement drugs has to be, has to be. And Armstrong denied it vociferously. 
And the chorus got louder and louder as he broke record after record. And then there was an investigation, and he, was, he biked for the U.S. Postal Service team, and two of his fellow bikers turned state's evidence and said, yes, there's performance enhancement drugs for all of us. And Lance leads the pack, and he bullies us into taking it. And it came out that he was uh, involved in drug abuse and that he berated people and manipulated people. And it was a difficult time. And, and so in, in 2013, an article was written by Texas Monthly Magazine entitled, The Man Who Fell to the Earth. It talks about Lance Armstrong. And it says when the, the news came out, it says Austin, Texas, that was Lance's home, and everybody loved him in Austin, Texas. He was the toast of the town. He said, Lance's once-adoring city turned to justice. By the end of the month, most people in Austin had changed their minds about their local hero. Now he was unofficially a doper, a cheat, and a bully. The next morning, readers of the Statesman, which had supported Lance, a newspaper, for many, many months, opened the headline with this, quote, it's time to rename the Lance Armstrong Bikeway, close quote. At the same moment, inside the 24-hour fitness gyms all across Austin, Texas, workers were literally scraping Lance's image off of the walls. Exercisers going to their workouts past pieces of Lance's face lying on the floor, waiting to be swept up and tossed in the garbage bin. Two months later, he went on Oprah, and he told almost 30 million people that, yes, he had been taking drugs for years. And people that were in Austin said that in sports bars all over that city, people were sitting there weeping over what he was saying. Now, I say that because even today, I mean, Lance Armstrong is presumptuous. He denies God. He denies God had anything with his healing. And, and so he, he lives in a way that says, it's all about me. The fourth way to get to be a fool very quickly is to have no concept of the brevity of life. To, to understand that, that, you know, the Bible says that life is a breath. The Bible says the outward man is perishing. So, so we're all going to die. We, we just push that in the background. In, in this same chapter, verses 32 and 33, Christ says the following. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. So, so sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so he says, again in verse 35, he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And then he says this. This is incredible to me. Uh, verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Unbelievable. He says, you know, if, if you really walk before the Lord, there'll be a time of blessing and reward when in some way the living God will serve you in heaven. I mean, it's amazing. And then he says in the last part of verse 48, he says, Everyone to whom much was given, to him much will be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. All of us have been gifted. And it's not about this person, that person. It's about me walking before God. Have I been faithful to the trust that God has given me in my life? So, so if you want to be a wise person, 
You realize that you that life is a breath. You, you understand Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 that says, you know, make the most of opportun- every opportunity because the days are filled with evil. Be very careful. There's a man named T.S. Eliot, the famous poet, who at the age of 22 wrote a, a poem entitled the, the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. He's 22. It was published when he was 26. became a very famous poem. He's writing from the perspective of an old man, even though he's 22, and he says about this old man, one line that I've, I've always found very interesting. He says this, I, I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. This is because life is short. I've measured out my life with coffee spoons. Let me, let me give you my quote of the week. I'm just reading this week. This is from Calvin. His Institutes. I'm rereading the Institutes. Calvin died in 1564. So I've had a few years to read them. He says, he says, finally, above and below us, before us and behind, violent temptations besiege us, which our minds would be quite unable to sustain were they not freed of earthly things bound to the heavenly life. Well, wow. And then, then he says this. He says, he alone has fully profited in the gospel who has accustomed himself to continual meditation upon the blessed resurrection and the hope of heaven. And I'm going, wow. He he alone, he, he alone has fully profited in the gospel who has accustomed himself to continual meditation upon the blessed red rescue. I'm going, how, 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 how do you do that? How do we walk with each other and remind each other that life is a breath and eternity awaits? How do we walk with each other and remind each other, you know, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How, how do we encourage each other? I want that. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. Except to have fellowship and, 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 and just remind each other that the glory awaits. And, and do not be seduced by the tantalizing aroma and ambiance of this world that says bigger barns and bigger barns and more and more and more. I don't know how to do it. I want to do it. So so that's the quote of the week. Let me me give you the the, the silliness of the week. This is some bottled water from Finland. It's called uh, something. Svalburi. It says Svalburi. It comes from the fjords of northern Norway and is pure, it's got, has a pure taste of snow and ice. And it goes for $100 a bottle. It's water. Now, water. And there's three orange tabs on chairs in here, and you get a case of it as you leave today. <laughs> it's, it's water. But I thought, what a picture of the world. A hundred dollars a bottle. So, so as I close, I'm taking about eight minutes, I'm going to close. Listen, how to live wisely and avoid the bigger barn mentality. Two points. Number one is realize that, that we, we have to live as salmon. You got to go against the current, guys. You got to go against the current. That's why we're saying Sunday's important, getting a Bible study, getting worship, but, or fill your mind with scripture and walk with people that are going the same way. 
It's absolute. you got to fight against it because everything around it says your worth is based upon this and this and this. And we got to say, no, it's not. We thank God for blessings. We thank God for success. But my identity is in Christ. Secondly, we need a standard. I'm just going to talk about a standard. And I'm going to say this morning that I believe in tithing as a biblical norm. It's giving 10% of your income. Uh, I believe that it's taught in the Bible. I don't think it's ever turned over or abrogated in the New Testament. I think in Luke 12, we've read where Jesus says, you tithe and you should tithe to the Pharisees. But you neglect justice and the love of God. So we don't want to neglect that. Um, there, there are people here that I respect and love very much. I've had discussions with them. It says, well, we don't believe in tithing. We believe in grace giving, which is really giving. I mean, it's because God loves a cheerful giver. And 2 Corinthians says that we should give as we purposed in our hearts. And, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm all, and the people that tell me that, many of them I think are very good givers. I don't know if they are or not. But, but the reason I, I need a standard because my heart is deceitful. And I suggest to you, a lot of people that say, we believe in grace giving, give 1% or less. And that doesn't honor the Lord. As the Bible says, we should. Randy Alcorn said this. He said, I'd like to focus on the biblical foundation, the cornerstone of stewardship. It is not the whole superstructure of stewardship. Far from it. It is not the ceiling of giving, but merely the floor of giving. But it is, for many people, the single most fundamental step in transforming your attitude and your actions concerning money and possessions, and that is tithing. Read it again. For many people, it is the single most fundamental step in transforming your attitude and your action concerning money and possessions. So, so I need a standard. And it's easy. When I get paid, you're paying me very graciously. When I'm enumerated, I say, okay, boom, boom. It's just easy. Simple math. And I think God honors that. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of, of why I need it. I'm here July, working on some things. I'm in the flow. It's going good. You know, you're, in the, you're doing well. And receptionist comes by and says, she knocks on my door and says, I hate, to, I hate to bother you, but there's a man here from a local restaurant that wants to meet with somebody. And, and everybody's walking around. And you're the only guy sitting around here. I said, okay, okay. And so uh, he was from Cracker Barrel. And, and so I, I go out, and as I go out, I run into Steve Tuck, our children's pastor. He's walking, walking by. I said, Steve, can you do me a favor? I said, there's a guy here who wants to talk to you about his restaurant. I'm in the middle of something. Would you mind doing it? He said, oh, I'd be glad to. He goes out, comes back in 10 minutes, knocks on my door, and holds up a, a gold coupon. And he says, free meal for me plus one other person. <laughs> and I thought, phooey, I missed it, you know. And, and then, he, then he said, but he wants me to give one to the senior pastor. I said, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I put it in the file, and, and that's July. So December, we're going Christmas shopping. Sarah and I are going Christmas shopping. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to take you out to you today. She says, oh. Yeah, when, when she thinks going out to eat, she thinks a, a place that has great presentation, and you leave hungry. You know what I'm talking about? This beautiful presentation, looks nice, it has all these things here. I was in Rock Hill preaching recently, and the pastor took me out to this really nice restaurant. Didn't know me. Didn't know me. So we're sitting there, two dudes in a really nice restaurant. I thought, this is a waste. And so I got, I got scallops, four scallops on some rice and, and spinach for 25 bucks. 
I'm going, good grief. Anyway, so my, my wife, that's what my wife's thinking about. She says, oh, we're going to I said, yeah, Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and she goes, okay. So I, I go into Cracker Barrel and for lunch, and nice hostess is there. And I, I say, well, what does this cover? <sighs> everything. I said, really? He said, yeah, everything. So I got a big plate, and I got raspberry tea that I never get, and and Sarah got a big meal, and um, at the end of the meal, I said, this includes dessert. And she says, I've had way too many chicken livers. I said, well, okay. Now, seriously, they serve chicken livers at Cracker Barrel. I can't believe that, but she didn't eat chicken livers. But I said, I can't. I said, I'm, I'm going to get dessert. So I said, bring, bring me a blackberry cobbler a la mode. I said, now, if you're from the upstate, a la mode means with ice cream, okay? <laughs> so blackberry cobbler mode. And so I'm hitting, to, I'm, I'm, I am suffering, but I am putting a dent in that coupon. And we're, as we're sitting there, so a dear woman in our church, I know we've known forever, came to us and said, I love you guys. Thanks for what you do. Please let me pay for your meal. And she put down a $20 bill. And I go, no, no, we, you, no, please. We can't take this. And she ran out the door. She's 83, but she outran me. So I'm <laughs> I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, another free meal to the barrel, baby. And, uh, and so, I'm, so I'm sitting there, and Sarah goes, you know this waitress we met that just moved here from Louisiana we think is a single mom that's really sweet? I said, yeah. She said, are you, are you, how much are you going to tip? I said, well, you t- you've taught me how to tip. I'm going to give 12 to 15% like you always tell me to. And she says, why don't you give her that $20 bill? And then I smiled, and inside I was going, are you kidding me? This is a windfall. Yeah. And so I said, and I did. See, my point is, my wife would probably be a good grace giver. I need a standard. And I think most of you do too. To honor the Lord. And God's given us a standard. So if we're going to push against a culture that is just filled with you got to look this way or do this or do that or live here or do that. Man, I got we, we've got to stand up and say, no, we're going to go against the flowing current. And, and we, we have a standard by which we honor the Lord with our resources. And it is this, boom. And we do this, boom. This is who we are. And God blesses that, I believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And we do pray, give us this day our daily bread in the area of protection in the area of resources, in the area of the Holy Spirit teaching us. And we thank you that we can cry out, Abba, Father, because of who Jesus is in our lives. Lord, make us people who understand what it means to go against the current and, and to live in such a way that we honor you with the totality of who we are. So I thank you. I praise you. I glory in the cross of Jesus in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.